When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Disney's Encanto just won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature earlier this week. I spoke with writer-director Jared Bush about growing up in Gaithersburg, Maryland, before creating the likes of Zootopia, Moana, and Encanto. Jared, thanks so much for joining us. I am so excited to be here. Thank you. <laughs> now, we were talking before you got on here. You remember T.O.P. from your days growing up in Gaithersburg. Of course, WTOP on my on my commute in. Always listen to it. my parents. Were like boop. Yes, I. Uh, it was a, it was a morning routine. Uh, and then later, when I uh, I had a job in DC, my dad would drive me to work, and we'd listen to it on the way in every day. So this is a treat for me. <laughs> well, now the treat is for all of our listeners getting to <laughs> you know talk to the man behind you know all the songs they've been hearing throughout their house over the <laughs> over the last many months. Uh, tell tell me, I want to get into all of that, but yep. take me into Oscar night. I mean. Congrats on winning. That's got to be a dream come true. What What's that moment like when you're sitting there and your name gets called? Oh, man. Well, it's nerve wracking, uh, you know, because I think this year there were so many excellent movies that were all up and we've all become friends over the course of the last few months. Uh, many of them I've worked with before, Don Hall and, and Carlos, who did Riot and the Last Dragon. I'm very good friends with them. They helped me uh, with Encantos, likewise for Enrico and Andrea. So um, I knew them really well. And then um, all of the Mitchells guys I got to know over the course of the last few months. And then the entire team from Flea is amazing. So I'd say when you're sitting there, you know, my heart's beating out of my chest because you don't you truly don't know. It's it's a it's it could go many different ways. Uh, all of it is exciting. But when they said it, it was, you know, like your heart stops for a second. <laughs> and then you realize oh, I should I should probably get up there quickly. Uh, the, the big secret is you have very limited time to talk, um, which they tell you in advance, but the right. amount of time it takes you to walk is, is a part of that time. So if you take 30 seconds to walk up, you can talk for 10 seconds. Right. So you kind of want to get up there because I really wanted to be able to say something to my family. Uh, that was really important, <laughs> but I knew that was the last thing I was going to say. So it was uh, to business. Oh man. And so like, as you mentioned, such a stacked year too, with Raya yes. and Luca and Mitchells and flea. I mean, that, that might be any, any other year, any of them could have won, but not 100%. going up against the juggernaut of Encanto baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the rest of the day? You know, the rest of the night, were you able to enjoy it? Because I, even just us covering it, I mean, man, the, obviously the, all, the elephant in the room was the big, you know, Will Smith, Chris rock thing, but were you, what would, I don't, I definitely don't want to ask anything about, you know, who was right or wrong. Cause it's, is your time to celebrate but just describe what it was like being there and you know and how the air just kind of came out of the room well um so uh, it's it's interesting I, I i had no idea um i was backstage after you win you go and do a bunch of interviews and pictures and i was back there for about an hour 
So I had no idea it happened. Wow. I we did all of that and it was amazing and fun and um and we got back to our seats and like something was different and and I was trying to figure out what was going on and my friends were like you missed something kind of big and they were explaining to me but it didn't re like I was like this I, that's not like I didn't see it so I must admit like is it a joke like I don't understand what happened because right. I I couldn't wrap my brain around it um so so weirdly I missed the whole thing and I was also say the only time. I've been to the Oscars prior to this uh, was on Zootopia. And that night, my friend said, hey, there's a party afterwards. We need you to get out of the room real quick and and, and take a place in line. And, and that would be great. And I was like, no problem. So I, I missed the last 10 minutes of the last Oscars, which was the year that Warren Beatty and Moonlight and La La Land. So I missed that moment too. So basically what happens is if I'm ever lucky enough to go to the Oscars and I leave the room, something enormous happens that I miss. And that's my <laughs> takeaway. <laughs> yeah, but Oscars, uh, don't don't get the wrong takeaway, Oscars. Keep giving the man awards. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, please, please. <laughs> and you wrote for the Smiths on, on the CW show, right? The, all, all of us, they're creative. Yeah. So that's got to be a, even more bizarre for you. But, no, uh, no. I mean, I, as I was walking up, he gave me a nice congratulations on the way to the stage. So, you know, it's, it's I'd say, again, not having been there, I, I don't have any of yeah. the actual context, um, you know. Uh, so it's <laughs> it'd be one of those things where I'm going to have to talk to other people. Sure. Well, you know what? Enough about that. It's taken it's ta it's taken up too much of the, the attention from all the winners anyway. So let's get down to why we wanted to talk with you. Hometown hero made good <laughs> from all Gaithersburg. Right. I want to I wanna go a little chronologically if we can through your journey. Yeah. So you grew up in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how did you did you make movies as a kid? You know, how did how did you get into, you know, into loving movies? I did. I did. Uh, you know, uh, I remember it specifically when I was 12, my dad got a video camera and uh this is back in the 80s and that was a big deal um and so me and my family my my brother my really good friends we would make home movies all the time and they were all ridiculous um but we i we loved it i loved it um and we kept on doing it um and so i found that um that that type of storytelling was exciting to me and and after college i was like i want to move to hollywood and get into the industry and people were like and do what i was like i have no idea um and luckily my parents were supportive of this crazy notion and they're like follow your dreams whatever those are that you don't know yet um so uh yeah so i moved out to los angeles um and i had kind of a you know a, a very indirect route to the job that i have now i started um working uh, at a talent agency i didn't want to be an agent but people said it's a great education the weird thing was and, and the perfect thing was my job there the biggest job was to read scripts and then to write what's called coverage, which is basically you do a synopsis of the story and then say, what's your impression of the writing style? Okay. I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scripts, which turned out to be the best education I could ever ask for. Um, and then I started to meet writers. and I was like, I think these are, these are my people. Um, and uh, shortly thereafter, I started trying to write my own scripts. I started in television my i think i think like everybody like the first things you write they're terrible but the more you do it uh you learn every single time so i had some really good mentors that just said just keep going it's going to be awful for a very long time uh, and it was uh but i was lucky enough to to get hired uh, on a tv show just as a writer's assistant which is sort of like a, a writer's apprentice right and that show went for a couple seasons and then i got into a different show and i became a staff writer and that went for a couple seasons and i moved up the the row there and then i always loved features and so i try to do that concurrently these are very different things television and, and feature writing uh it's it's 
anything you do in television doesn't really translate to features. So I had to build my career on that side. Um, and then luckily, um, one day I was like, I, the type of movies I like are these big, you know, entertainment for everyone type of stories. I grew up on Amblin movies, you know, Indiana Jones, Star Wars. These are like my, that's, that's what I love. Um, and, and at the time, um, you know, movies from Pixar and Disney were the only ones that I felt were like early 2000s were really doing that. Um, and so I bugged and bugged and bugged Disney to, to give me an interview. And I got hired by Byron Howard, who's my directing partner. And he was working on a movie about animals. And I was like, I love animals uh, at the time as a spy movie. And, uh, I would, and they hired me. I was like, amazing. And my first day of work, they said, we threw that whole thing out. Start from scratch. It's animals. And that's about all we had. Uh, and, uh, and we created Zootopia. And I've been here ever since. Awesome. So much I want to unpack. I want to pick back up with Zootopia, but real quick, I want to double back to the, the local angle really quick because you yeah. went to QO, right? Quince Orchard. I High did. School? Yes. Who who were some of your, uh, if you want to give a shout out, who, like, who were some of your, I don't know if they're still there, but you know, who at, at the time when you were there, who were some of your, you know, biggest mentors or your favorite teachers that got oh, you? Oh, wow. Well, so, uh, so a couple things. One, I was the I, when I went to Quince Orchard, it was the first year it opened. So oh, I was wow. actually the first, my class was 92. It was the, I was the first four year class of the school. Every class that was there in front of me was only there three years or two years because juniors, so we had no senior class. What were you, a, what were you a branch off of what other school when they opened QO? Uh, it, I would have gone to Seneca Valley. Seneca. Okay. Yeah. Which were where my sister went. So we were actually should have been in the same school, but Quince Orchard opened. So she was a senior at Seneca and I was a freshman at Quince Orchard. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Angelo, who is my music teacher, um, was a, uh, as someone that I always uh, uh, looked up to. Um, and uh, as a musician myself, that's been hugely helpful to me. Uh, working on musicals has been amazing. I would say that um, the principal at the time was Dr. Warren. And, uh, and he was always a, a good friend to me and, and helped me quite a bit. Um, I, you know, um, Mrs. Vercel, I remember, um, told me, uh, I was all, I was only math and science. And I think I remember her saying she was an English teacher. She's like, I think English is like, would be good for you. And I'm like, I don't think so. That's not really <laughs> what I'm interested in. And she's like, I think you should think about it. Uh, and so that, you know, my, my love of creative writing came out of that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, um, I think one of the things I, I always think about is, you know, uh, teachers have such a huge impact on you uh, and, and the right teacher who can see something in you that, that you don't see yourself um, can be uh, a life changer. And it certainly was for me. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for your, yeah. I just wanted to ask a little bit more about that high school. All right. Well, back to Zootopia. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about, uh, so obviously I guess you co-direct it. Um, but, but talk about, you know, how, how it wound, I mean, it went and goes on to win the Oscar, but just talk about how I always thought it was such a brilliant, you know, allegory or social commentary for, for race and class in America, mm -hmm. but told through these characters through a zoo and the city and everything. But talk about sort of the, the key to, to telling something with such depth. Um, but you know, it's gotta be subtle enough that, you know, it, it, it doesn't fly over the heads of kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it is, it's tricky. I'd say that the, the biggest uh, um, I think benefit to working at Disney Animation is that we have the luxury of time. Our movies take about five years right. from, from the kernel of an idea to it being in a theater. Um, and that five years isn't, isn't animating it. Uh, most of the time is spent trying to figure out the story and trying to figure out your thematics and understand your characters really well. And you have many bites of that apple to try different things, to experiment and try to 
to get it right. So um, yeah, that was definitely one where, you know, looking at, okay, we have prey and we have predators and what is that dynamic going to be like? What are we building off of? What are those parallels to, to what we know in, in our, um, in our human lives? Um, and so we spent a lot of time researching and a really interesting thing that we learned while we were doing that is that the sort of the natural ratio of, of predators to prey or, or prey to predators is, is 10 to one or nine to one. So 10% predators, 90% prey, which is a very interesting number breakdown. If you're telling a story where there's one group that has sort of uh, uh, been, been uh, uh, in charge of things for a while and another group that's been marginalized and that the, some of those parallels really worked um, to tell a story that we wanted to have people look at differently and expectations and assumptions. Um, but you're right, it is really hard because you don't want to hammer people over the head with a message. At the same time, you don't want people to, to miss that message. And so a lot of our time was spent just micro adjusting certain lines, um, trying to do things more visually than spoken. Um, and luckily, you know, we have 800 people that, that work on these movies. And as a result of that, we have 800 people that are giving us feedback, that are helping us, that are bringing their own experiences into that. And that's critical to telling a story like that. Fantastic. And of course, Zootopia comes out the same year, 2016, as Moana, which you, you know, you wrote the script for. I mean, I know there's a lot of, you know, co-story credits and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But uh, how, how, how is, well, educate our listeners, how does that work when your name, it says, you know, written by on a, on a Disney or a Pixar movie, yeah. uh, you know, is, is it your kernel of idea or is it an idea that's been, you know, battle tested in a, in a room and then they say, all right, uh, we, Jerry, we need you to go off and actually do the writing. And like, how does that actually work for a, a movie like Moana? Yeah. You know, it is, uh, it is, um, it's different for every project I'll say. So, yeah. so I'd say uh, Zootopia, for example, Byron Howard had this idea of animals and the way that they might interact with each other. Um, and then, like I said, I was lucky enough that when I came in to join the project, they just torn it all the way down and like, we need to build something new. We knew we had modern animals. Uh, we also knew it was going to be in a city and that these dynamics were going to be at play. How that worked for us to decide. Uh, Moana was actually uh, moving concurrently at the exact same uh, timeline, meaning we didn't know whether Zootopia was going to be in theaters first or Moana. So, and it could have gone either way. Um, Zootopia came out in, in early, I think it was March of, of 2016. And then Moana came out in the fall. Um, uh, so we did, it, it could have been the other way around uh, when when the projects were first beginning. So um, I'd say on that one, Ron Clemens and John Musker, who are, you know, uh, uh, I think the, the most famous Disney directors ever, you know, Little Mermaid and Aladdin and everything you love, they did. Um, and they'd been working on it for a while. Um, and, um, and they, you know, uh, sometimes uh, different writers come in and try different things. Um, but just as Zootopia is ramping down and we'd sort of gotten over the, most difficult part of that process. Um, uh, Moana had cast Dwayne Johnson as Maui um, and Ali'i Cavalio as, as Moana. And they were looking at those character dynamics. Um, and I love writing um, fun, you know, character back and forth. Like characters are, 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 I think, the thing that I enjoy the most, uh, which they knew. And they said, okay, well, we're looking at these relationships. Um, would you mind coming over to, to help out um, and that was also when um, Don Hall, who, who also just directed Raya and Chris Williams, both of them had also directed Big Hero 6. They had also joined the project as everything was trying to get done. Uh, and so we all talked about what's the structure. Uh, and then for me, it was a dream come true. 
you know, you're writing uh, what was going from Zootopia, which is dozens and dozens of characters to basically two people on a boat, which is almost a stage play. It's a, <laughs> it's a giant challenge from a writing perspective because you have to make it interesting and it really comes down to character dynamics. So on that one, um, well, we basically um, started from scratch in terms of those dynamics and what those characters would be and having the specific actors in mind for those voices um, made a lot of difference, but you always have a ton of help. You know, there's many, like I said, many, many people doing all this. Um, but, um, for me, it was a, it was a joy to be able to work with, with all of them. Absolutely. So you knew you were writing uh, for the rock. He had already been cast and that's, that's gotta, yeah. well, that's gotta be wild. Uh, you probably want, you might, well, I don't know what year did you graduate QO? Did you grow up watching him on in the ring? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, so I graduated in 92 from Quince Orchard. Okay. So that was long um, before. And that was long before. Yeah, it was eons before. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, I think Dwayne and I are very similar ages. I think maybe he's only a couple of years older than I am. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I uh, I was a, a huge fan of his, and in that role, he's just so good. And so, really, um, I think what I try to do the most is just lean into his strong suits. I, th I think for any any actor that that is playing one of your characters it's always a combination of who that person actually is and the character that you have in your mind. And then you sort of find some way to meld them together into something um, that is, uh, that is unique and feels very in line with, with who that person actually is. That's, that's one of my favorite things in the world. Right. And afterwards he comes up and says, thank you for writing that. And you say, you're welcome. <laughs> I will awesome. say that that recorded that song was one of my most favorite parts of Moana. That was a very fun day. Oh, Lin Manuel Miranda is a freaking genius, and how far I'll go, though, and shiny, the whole everything. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll use Lin to segue into the reason we're here at long last. We've I love it. To the present and Canto. Uh, <laughs> it is such it is such a good one. I've seen it. I guess twice. My wife's watched it three times and is playing it nonstop on Spotify, <laughs> uh, like everyone in, in America and around the world. Um, how how does the idea come come up about? I, I know. Um, I know. Uh, uh, what I appreciated at least is the themes of this generational trauma, right? Like mm -hmm. there's not some evil Disney villain, like before here, the, the antagonist is grandma is the abuela, you know, but mm -hmm. he just happens to be controlling and it has these issues, but it's stuff that we can all relate to. So sort of talk about that, the idea of writing a, a story that, that dealt with sort of a deep, family sort of theme like that generational trauma that's that's important stuff for kids to hear it is you know i think that uh what well, interesting so byron and i um we're already talking about what we're going to do next even as we are finishing zootopia um and we are both musicians and um we were like we got to do a musical next um and then like i said i was concurrently working on moana and working with lynn was fantastic um and he was like i want to do something else but i want to do something set in latin america somewhere um and so the three of us are like, this all makes sense. Uh, it would be a dream come true to do this. Um, and so the first thing you do, honestly, is say, you have to find yourself in your stories. Um, you have to have a, a deep personal connection. And so we all had to figure out what that was. All of us have these large extended families. And we hadn't seen a story that, that talked about that and talked about different generations, how all of that, uh, you know, one generation affects the life of the next and how we also don't really see each other in our families. We sort of have like one view and it's really hard, like, it's hard for me to see my mother as anything more than my mom. Like, there's a whole person there. There's a whole life there. Right. Uh, and that's the same for every member of your family. And we, we talked about that a lot. Um, and so 
early on, we really, our research was our own families. And then we started building the story about, you know, I think in life, it's easy for us to, to look around and, and, and make judgments about things. And in this family where we started talking about magic and, and certainly once magical realism in Colombia came into the conversation, oh man, it could be this, this family that has these gifts. And what if one member of the family doesn't have it? How would that feel? But then also like, that feels very relatable. I think many of us, definitely myself included, look around, you're like, everyone has it together. I don't know why I don't, but everyone also is dealing with that same thing. We just don't really talk about it. Um, and so that became this, you know, a tentpole. And then um, uh, Sharice Castro-Smith, who is our co-director and co-writer, um, uh, has an encyclopedic knowledge of magical realism and also a deep family connection. Um, her family is Cuban-American uh, and her, her family immigrated here and that sense of uh, trying to go to a new place, uh, being displaced and how those things affect um, different members of your family, people that have gone through that versus hearing stories about it is very different. Um, and so that whole opening, that whole core uh, was written by her. The first time we read it, we're like, this is phenomenal and beautiful and the foundation of this story. So um, it's interesting. You, you never really know where the story is going to take you as you begin the journey. You know what's important to you. Uh, telling a story about extended family, telling a story about how hard it is to see each other and self-worth. That's, that was our true North. The way to get there is something that you discover along the way. Oh, and absolutely. And such a great point you're saying about people, especially kids that, that might not know. Sure. They'd be like, Hey, my, my brother's good at this. My sister's good at this, but what's my gift? Where have I placed yeah. in the world? They will totally relate to the main character. Um, well, tell me about the, the, we're, I know, I know we're not supposed to talk about Bruno, but let's talk about <laughs> Bruno. What's yes. uh where does that whole idea come about? Because the idea, you know, and, 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 and by the way, that's one of the things that Ray pays on repeat viewings is, oh, the rats yeah. in the walls, obviously. <laughs> but, um, but man, I gotta, I gotta blame you for making me cry. That, that scene where he's looking out, watching them eat dinner and he's drawn oh, yeah. his little, he's drawn his own little plate. I'm getting, yeah, brutal. why'd you do that to me? <laughs> you know, it's funny. That character was one we had very early on. Initially, um, he was a cousin. He was not an uncle. He was a cousin. We like the idea that someone in this family is almost a cautionary tale that the weight of the responsibility, the weight of these gifts can sometimes uh, go the wrong direction and be too much for somebody. So this, this idea that there's a black sheep of the family, that that was what Mirabelle could potentially become if she wasn't healed, if she couldn't you know, sort of make her way through, was something that we, we needed that character to be there. The specificity of, of, of Bruno as we started to work through the story he got more and more interesting as we went. And we found that like, he's very funny. Like John Leguizamo absolutely kills it in this role. Uh, only he could do this, but that character has to go from like, I gotta be afraid of that guy to like, oh my God, he's, he's really funny and sweet. And then like, oh no, he is tragic. And oh, I feel so terrible. And so, likewise, like when I saw that, I was just like, God, you feel so much uh, in that moment. So that's something that we took a long time to build. We tried many versions of that scene sometimes it was too sad throughout and it was too much. And then other times it was too jokey. And so you're really playing emotionally going back and forth and trying to figure out the exact right balance of those emotions. And so they feel, so they don't feel manipulative. They feel organic and real. That's something that's really important to us. But I'd say, yeah, John Leguizamo's performance, amazing. Uh, Mark Kennedy, he's a storyboard artist here, boarded that sequence. And when he had that little slit of, of light coming through and then looking down, he said that plate, we were like, all right, we're, we're done. And then the animators get into it and it's all those tiny expressions. So it's, it's a, it's an enormous group effort, but you get these little nuggets of, of really beautiful emotion that, uh, that you cling on to. 
Oh, it's just one. What is it? What did Disney say? For every laugh, there's got to be a tear, and that—that's yep. the—that's the teardrop, <laughs> for yep. at least for me. We'll talk about. We, we got to talk about the music a little bit here. Yeah. Um, so, so um, when when you're writing the script, do you? Is it just like there's like little slots where you're like, okay, insert Lin song here, or do you kind of know <laughs> the lyrics he's working with? Or how does that work? Uh, you know, it's very chicken and the egg, and it depends on which song. You know, everything's different. Um, so, you know, one of the big rules is like you can't have a song unless a character must sing meaning like you can't arbitrarily say okay and music happens like why does that character need to sing you usually have to force them emotionally to a place where that becomes um something that they would do um and over the course of the five years of making the movie um we actually you know i i have like between Sharice and I, we have well over a thousand drafts of this because you're trying and, and rewriting and rewriting. We also do the same thing visually. So in those five years, we actually um, draw the movie, um, edit it together, all black and white sort of hand-drawn um, uh, about eight times. We have eight screenings of the movie over those five years where we're trying different things. And early on, it's really difficult because you don't know the characters well enough. You have no music, but you're trying to tell people in the studio, hey, it's gonna be a musical. There's no music, however. And so there's tricks. There's tricks. Sometimes you you write a scene and you say, like, there's going to be music here. Other times you'll put in a, a sort of a fake song or they're like a lot of music. And then you'll rhyme what the characters are saying. Or sometimes, like in our very first screening, Lynn wrote the original, the, the first song, the the Family Madrigal song. Family he Madrigal. A version. He wrote that a version for the first screening, but knowing it was going to change a thousand times before the movie actually came out. So he gave us a version of here, let's meet all the characters. Here's what they're, they might sound like. Um, that changed a bunch of course over the, uh, while making it, but it's, it's, yeah, it's every single song is a little different and you never know where exactly a song is supposed to be. Um, I will say that one of the, my, my great joy in life is that uh, early on, I will sometimes write fake lyrics that are really terrible intentionally <laughs> to mess with Lynn. And that is something that he hates and I love as a result. So that's <laughs> that's one of my guilty pleasures. Like, no, Lynn, we're using this <laughs> terrible song. <laughs> I don't I know you're a Broadway, but no, it's mine. Yeah, uh, that's hilarious. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Family Madrigal. I'm, I was always, I'm amazed how much information you pack into that introductory song. You got to meet all of the different grandkids <laughs> yes. and everything. But it works. It pulls it up and sets the stage. But um, honestly, I think um, I think uh, my favorite in, in, is is surface pressure. I think that one yeah. is just drip drip. It's just it's amazing. Um, talk, just talk about that song specifically. Um, how how that came together. That was one of the. Uh, I think that was the the second song. So after Family Madrigal, he wrote that song, and that's that song when it came in it was very close to what you hear in the movie. Even his demo is very very close. Um. That was a huge help to us because we were trying to figure out this character of Louisa, uh, what her vibe, what her tone is. And early on, he's like, she's got it. It's got to be a reggaeton. Like she's a strong character to play with that. And then have this, the, the bridge of the song that sort of the, in the middle of it open up and you get this sort of airy unburdened version. And then it's right back to that, that very modern feel. That's something that Lynn wanted from the beginning. I'd say that what was great for Sharice and I was that when we heard the lyrics, they were actually... They were actually um, a much more clear window into Luisa's issues than we initially thought the song was going to do. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we heard it and we thought it was phenomenal, we actually went through the entire script and adjusted all of Luisa's lines throughout everything because we understood her better. And that's a great example of, of where the music can really 
change a story and elevate a story. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say the other thing that was great was, and then you move down the line and you get into actually making the song and our music team is stellar. Um, I think that when, when Jess Darrow came in and absolutely crushed that song, you know, she's a phenomenal talent. Um, and then all the musicians coming in. And I think the really cool thing is it has a very modern feel. Um, you know, we didn't want to have a musical where it all felt like music from a specific era. We wanted to bounce all around, um, uh, uh, I think, many different years of types of music because Colombia is such a, an amazing music mecca. Uh, and music, you can hear a song from today, from 50 years ago, uh, from 10 years ago, and you're listening to those things constantly. We wanted the movie to feel like that. Oh, absolutely. And, and it does. It does. And, and that surface pressure song is, I just think it's the show stealer. I, I love it. It's like my underrated. That's the one. But of course, the big phenomenon, the, the one everyone's going to remember is we don't talk about Bruno. Yeah. Um, what was it like kind of, you know, the movie comes out and you probably, you probably a fan of all the songs, but um, what was it like watching just that just snowball just just grew and grew and grew and it be, you know it became the and ironically you guys yeah you had to choose which song you were and you submitted do, what dos origatas how do you say it dos, dos origatas dos origatas to the oscars not knowing how big bruno would become but just talk about yeah. that whole phenomenon of of bruno oh i mean it's uh i i, I it is unbelievable, it, it, like tr literally unbelievable like i remember the movie came out and obviously uh, bruno is a song that we loved um, it's a very specific type of song. It's, a, it's an ensemble song. It, there's a lot of information in there. You, I, I always thought like, well, to enjoy it, you have to be watching the movie because otherwise none of it makes sense because you're talking about all these character interactions. Um, but it was also one where Lynn, I feel like had the most fun because he's bouncing from character to character. Each character has a different tone, different vibe. Right. Some of them are, are, are this gossip about uh, Bruno, but others are talking about their own issues. And so you're learning about them at the same time. Um, and then there's also story happening, you know, that's Mirabel trying to put together this, this vision that is cracked. And, and by the end of it, she realizes she's front and center in it. So um, I, I think one of the most amazing things is that um, every Friday night uh, for the last probably two and a half, three years, we would get together with Lynn. He was on the East Coast um, and uh, we would uh, Friday night at six o'clock, he'd put his kids to bed, nine o'clock his time on the East Coast, six o'clock our time. And we talk what what the music was going to be, and you know he'd share a snippet of something he was working on, or we'd talk about, oh, we found this moment, we think that there's probably this is probably a zone uh, to get started in, and we were talking about that that um, that Bruno song, and we said, well, you know it's you know we're, it's a great song to to hear everyone's opinions. We need to set this guy up as the villain of our story, so it's got to have these sort of these dark parts of it. Um, there's a lot of gossip and he's like, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like, a, he goes, I think it's like a, like a, feels like it'd be a spooky Montuno type of song. And he turned on our Zoom to his keyboard and went dung, dung, dung and wrote it in real time in front of us. And we were just like, I think that's it. And like three days later, we had his demo and it was him singing all of the parts. So if you can imagine, it was 10 Lens singing the We Don't Talk About Bruno song. Um, and we, it was just, it was so good and so entertaining, so fun. And it's dead center of the movie. It's like this burst of energy. That's phenomenal. And then when the movie comes out, um, I did not have TikTok at the time. And people were like, you got it. You got to go on TikTok. And I'm like, I don't, what is it? I don't even understand what that is. Like, I'm barely, I, I think I'm barely understanding Twitter now. What is it? And like, just go. And I went and I couldn't believe it. It was so exciting because so many people found their way into this song and it wasn't just like one person doing one thing it was 
all of the characters being represented, people finding their own ends or their their own comedic moments or spooky things. And just to see the the way that people put themselves into that story, it's like a dream. It's absolutely a dream come true. And the most amazing, surprising thing I could have imagined from this movie. Yeah, you're telling people, you telling this story or am I? It's everyone else. It's everyone else is telling it now. Oh, yeah. that's that's so awesome. Well, um, in in hindsight, just bringing it full circle back to the Oscars. I mean, obviously, it wins Best Animated Feature. That's the yeah. really great one. But um, in in hindsight, are are you wishing that you guys submitted that one? Or Lynn, Lynn could be an e guy right now. But then again, he was home with his family with COVID, so maybe it's a blessing in disguise. He can do the e guy when he's actually there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd say this. I'd say uh, um, and, and something that Lynn said too. Like the the fact that that people have found this music, the like every song in this movie, and everyone has found their way into those songs is incredible. The fact that 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 it, it was the number one album for weeks worldwide is insane. Um, that like that there was a time where all of our songs were in the top 100 billboard concurrently. It's never happened. So I think, I think Lynn is very happy with how that went. I'd say in retrospect, what we have done for the Oscars, not the thing different. Um, you know, I think that to, 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 to hear Dos Orguitas, which is the emotional core of our story, a song that's completely in Spanish, hundred percent, that's very, very important to us. It's very important for the country of Colombia. That was, you know, we uh, we have so many good friends there. Hundred percent, we do that. <laughs> the fact that we got to hear both songs uh, at the Oscars, uh, I, I don't know that that's ever happened. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I just feel like we are we are very fortunate, very, very fortunate throughout. And I um, I'm not worried about Lynn uh, <laughs> achieving an EGOT. It's just a matter of time. It is. And like you're saying, it's an embarrassment of riches with all the songs yeah. you could have chosen. So, well, I really appreciate you, you joining us. Um, what should we say in closing about Encanto? I mean, uh, or actually, you know what? Let's do Let's end this way. If there's other local people, other people like at Quince Orchard or, or growing up in the area, listening to WTOP, what advice would you give them or, or pep talk? And, you know, if they want to if they want to pursue this, what, what would you say? You know, binge all the Disney movies and then make it out that make your way out to L.A. <laughs> What's your advice? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I'd say this. I'd say that that I was very lucky to have people that um, that pushed me, that challenged me, but also said that um, that they like I had a voice that people would want to listen to. Um, and I think that's what I'd say to anyone who's interested is this is very true. We need new voices. Um, your specific voice is really, really important. Um, I'd say it, it, much more important than trying to figure out what Hollywood might want is we want you, we want individual unique perspectives that's critical. Um, uh, anyone, if, if, if I can be here having this conversation with you, anyone can do that. Um, and so just continuing to, to follow that passion is, is really important. You know, I started in the late 80s making dumb home videos with my friends um, and we made a lot of dumb home videos, um, never knowing where that would go, but it was just something that we really liked doing. So if that's something that you really like doing, follow that hey i need to know what was one of the dumb home videos <laughs> oh man my, if my, I... my twin brother and i went home from watching home alone and we made boy by himself <laughs> now what was that for you <laughs> well you know what i would say that there's there's some of them and the names of those that uh, i probably can't mention right now i'd say <laughs> that um uh, my brother joel and 
my best friend Jeff and Brian uh, made a lot of um, ridiculous stories. Um, <laughs> uh, I, my brother made one called Hot Cop Part Two. That is one of my most favorite things that I ever got to do. Um, but uh, I'd say that that we sh we shot them all around DC, and several times um, uh, we were pulled over uh, by the police who were wondering what we were doing and why we were wearing wigs and chasing people across bridges and tossing bungee jumped um, dummies, you know, over the side of a highway. So, um, you know, we made some interesting choices, uh, but, but here I am. So I guess it worked out. Hot cop part two. <laughs> Everyone <Yeah>. check it out. <laughs> yeah, get in there. Uh, final seconds. What was your Disney movie then? I, I, I got to know growing up, you know. It, oh, what... Jungle Book. Jungle Book. 100%. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, Gotta it had to be. Yeah, Gotta it was the first, it was the first one I remember seeing in the theater. And also it's a musical and... I loved the villain and the villain wanted to eat the main character who was a child. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know how you made me like that character, but amazing. So for me, that the music and the whole, everything about it, I loved it. Oh, George Sanders as Sheer Khan. That is, you're right. One of the all timers. Wow. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Jared Bush. Uh, this, has been, this has been great. And uh, everyone uh, go check out Encanto for the 20th time. And you, <laughs> you, you pick up new things, at, at, you know, every time you see it. So um, congrats on the Oscar. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right. Catch you later. See ya. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.